0: in church. I'm going to make sure I've got all my bells and whistles on correctly. Bill, where's Bill at? Okay. I think I'm supposed to cover up the white knot, but I always forget. I get it backwards sometimes. So hopefully Bill can hear me. If not, he can yell at me later. I'll probably deserve it. It's always awesome to be able to come and and preach. Um, We actually didn't It's funny how often, when we plan out the schedule for the preaching schedule, how often it it turns out that I'm preaching when, like, I have family in town. Like, we never plan it that way. It just always seems to fall that way. Um, Today, it fell in such a way that, like, if Robert was supposed to preach today, I'd probably be preaching, I don't even know what, because he would have, well, Robert's homesick is what I'm saying. We didn't plan that, but maybe we did. Uh, Also, uh, a friend of mine from school is here, Adam Spots and his lovely wife. Um, We went to school together back in Oklahoma. Uh, He's at the Bear Valley Institute right now, and so it's great to have them here visiting as well while he's on break. Um, I've been in this study of of moving by faith, both personally and and with the youth group for a while now, Uh, and I wanted to bring some of my thoughts to um, our our worship this morning, and and so that's where we're going to be. Kind of focused is what it means to be moved by faith. Second um, Corinthians chapter five verse six through ten is where we're gonna kind of be anchored today. We're gonna be uh, moving around a little bit, but we're gonna be anchored here. This is where we're gonna come back to as well. And so I'm gonna read that right now for you. Uh, this one's from the English Standard Version. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes. We are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Likely you have heard this verse, or at least part of this verse, more times than you can count. Mostly it's, it's, it's verse 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Uh, that's the one that, that, that comes to our mind most readily. It's, it's the one that really, 6 and then 8 through 10, we, we don't talk much about those verses. We talk mostly just about walking by faith and not by sight. And so the question then becomes, what does this mean to you, or what has this Meant to you in the past. Again, no doubt you've heard this or quoted it or seen it. Cross-stitched on a pillow or maybe framed on a wall more times than you can imagine. Honestly, it's a phenomenal motto. It's really catchy. It's a great, like this would be a great tagline for an ad campaign. It's simple. It's profound. It's easy to remember. It's so simplistic, but it feels so deep. And it is so deep. But a lot of times we take this out of context. And though it might teach us something good, it might not be what Paul's talking about here in 2 Corinthians. Now part of the blame, at least a part of it, we can blame on like 18th century monks or 19th century monks or 16th century monks who went through the Bible and and separated into chapter and verses. Because if you look there, Verse 7 is is completely stripped out of the sentence that it's in, and it's set apart. This verse was so profound to that monk, he's like, no, people are going to want to know this one. They're going to want to be able to find this quickly, so I'm going to make sure that this is set apart. And, and I mean, I, I appreciate that he did that, but it does make it easy for us to separate it from the context as well. It's been chopped right out of that sentence it was in. So now in our modern lives, a lot of times people interact with this verse in this way. A profound picture, in a a simple yet profound quote. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Or in some translations, for we live by faith, not by sight. Now the word there, that's in the Greek, to walk, is a metaphorical walk. Hebraistically, it's used to talk about your walk in life as you journey through life. Now, I want to take a second, and I want you guys to just look in your Bibles. I don't know if, I don't think I put another one up there. I think I did, actually. Uh, No, I didn't, so don't listen to me, Remington. I I, I took it out. I want you guys to look at verses 6 through 10 without 7. Open your Bibles, look at 6 through 10 without 7, and you'll notice that 7 seems kind of out of place. Actually, Raymond, do you want to go back a couple slides so that we can look at it? I probably should have just made my own slide there. Let's so go back two slides, or yeah, one more. Oh, that, that's perfect. So, so let's pretend that for we walk by faith, not by sight, is not in there. So we're going to try to put some of the blame on Paul for why this is pulled out of context, which is just a fun exercise, if nothing else. So so we are always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Yes, we are of good courage, and we'd rather be away from the body and at home. with It flows really nicely without it in there. It seems like it's just been thrown in there, and so I think that gives a lot of us... Well, let's just pull it out since it was pulled. Let's just use it as its own thing because I, I like the idea. I like the concept for I walk by faith, not by sight. So what's the big deal? Well, the problem is outside of the context, the true meaning becomes a little fuzzy. Let's go, let's go forward a couple back to the Facebook post page. Let's go to the yeah, next one here. If it, it Oh, sorry. Go back one. There's an animation in there. I'm I'm being difficult. There we go. It can become fuzzy when our interactions with the verse becomes divorced from the context, and it starts to subtly change in some ways. Because if you just take the verse by itself, "For I walk by faith and not by sight," it's easy to see how that became this. I will walk by faith even when I cannot see. It doesn't seem like a large jump. But the problem is is that the meaning of this is very different from what Paul wrote. For we walk by faith, not by sight, is not equal to I walk by faith even when I cannot see. Because if you say that you walk by faith even when you cannot see, that means at some point you can see. At some point in your walk, you're walking by faith because you can see. It gives a different connotation to the, the, the scripture completely. It makes it seem Like it's kind of a boast in your Christian faith. Well, I'm a good Christian, so even when things are difficult, I still walk by faith. That is so far from what Paul's writing about. Because though it seems like that verse 7 is just dropped in the middle of this conversation about being at home in the body and away from the Lord, it's very paramount to the purpose of that verse. It's the heart of what Paul is writing about. He's not saying that it's good to walk by faith even when you're not spiritually high. It's so much deeper. Paul's telling us that if we are Christians, then walking by faith without sight is the only thing you can do. He says we are at home in the body. We are living physically right now. We cannot see. We are not at home with the Lord. We are in our physical bodies right now, so because of that, we walk by faith and not by sight. We have no choice. Because we cannot see what Christ has promised us. We cannot see that until when? Until we receive it. That's the thing about the faith that we have in Christ, is that we cannot see it until it's come. We cannot be fully certain of it. Until he has come home to take us. So we have no choice but to walk by faith. We must do so much more than just believe that God is real. What we do about that is important as well. Because faith is so much more than just believing God is real. I've got a short video that I want you guys to watch. And we're going to continue on with this thought. Um, So let's go ahead and go to the next one here. Just a little more. To the...
1: ah!
0: Oh my gosh. Am I dead? Have I always looked that bad in those pants?
1: Aaron Fielding, you're dead. You look really bad in those pants. Come on, I'm here for your soul. What? No, there must be some mistake. I thought so, too, but it turns out redheads do, in fact, have them. <laughs> no, no, I mean, why am I going with you instead of going to heaven? Don't blame me. This is just the results of the coin toss. Is that uh, pizza fresh? I don't care. Coin toss? Yeah. It's uh, when two people flip a coin and they guess whether it's... Heads I know what a coin toss is. I just... Okay, good, because I was about to be like, you dumb. My eternal judgment was decided by a coin toss? No, well, sometimes it's difficult to know where to put someone when they die. This is terrible, by the way. So I was right on the line between good and evil. No, nobody wanted you. (laughs) But you said there was a coin toss. Yeah, and I lost. (laughs) You think I'm here because I want your soul? Trust me, this is more my punishment than yours. Am I that bad? No, I love bad. Bad is like my whole thing. If you were bad, I'd be doing cartwheels right now. You're not bad, you're boring. You are the most blah human being. Oh my goodness, is this a Velcro wallet? Is Velcro boring? I wish you could die twice.
0: I I thought I lived a pretty good life. I I didn't steal or lie.
1: I know. You were a constant disappointment to me.
0: (laughs) But that's good, right? It's not like I
1: killed anybody. Oh, you didn't kill anyone? Well, let's get you a seat in heaven next to Mother Teresa. You know, when people talk about her accomplishments, they usually don't mention how many people she didn't kill. Look at all these people Mother Teresa didn't kill. What a saint. (laughs) They talk about how many she helped. I help people. Who? Point taken. Point taken. Time to go. You have done nothing, good or bad, with your life. You went to work, you came home, you watched Netflix, and you mostly ate microwavable chimichangas, which I personally think should be a sin, but I digress. I paid my taxes. Hitler paid his taxes, Aaron. It's not exactly the demarcation line between good and evil.
0: By not my dog. He proves that I'm good. I bought him from a rescue shelter instead of a breeder.
1: Because you're poor? Yeah. yeah. I can't believe this. Nobody wants my soul. Why would they? You're a fence-sitter, Aaron. You are room-temperature Coca-Cola. You are the plain yogurt of people. I like plain yogurt. I know. Because you're the worst. I kind of wish redheads didn't have souls. Yeah, you guys were a lot more interesting when I thought that. What if you didn't take me? What if you let me return to my body and give life another try? Hmm. Ordinarily, second chances aren't really my domain, but I do hate you. <laughs> All right, fine. You can go back to your body. But please remember, Aaron, good isn't just the absence of bad. It's also the presence of good. You want me to be good? Good, so you don't have to see me again. Yeah. <laughs> good luck, you human rice cake.
0: I'm alive. From now on, I will fill my life with good works and, ooh, my chimneys. <laughs> hey guys, thanks for watching that video. So there's a lot wrong with that video, I'm not gonna pretend like that's perfect theology because it's not. Uh, First and foremost, the idea that God wouldn't want somebody is ridiculous. Christ humbled himself to become human, came to earth to dwell with us in hopes that we would choose to follow him just for the opportunity for us to choose him so that we could be with him in heaven. That's proof enough that God absolutely wants us. But I'm not going to spend the rest of my time talking about all the ways that's wrong. I want to talk about what they got very right. It was the moral that was taught at the very end of that lesson. And it's something that I believe is paramount to our Christian walks in our faith. That good is not just the absence of bad. It's the presence of good. Being a follower of Christ is more than just avoiding sin. We must seek out ways that we can Abide in God's will. Believing in God and walking in faith, and walking by faith in Him and His promises are very two, are two very different things. There are plenty of people in this world who acknowledge that God is real, but do not love Him and do not serve Him. It's written in Isaiah, Paul writes about it, Jesus talks about it, that every knee will bow before God. But not everyone will be taken home to heaven. Christ's teachings must be more than just a good or beneficial idea. It must become necessary to our daily lives. Because there are plenty of people who believe in God, love Him and love His Son, but that love is not reflected in who they are or how they act. And that is a pretty Big problem. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23, uh, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's kind of scary. Because there's, Jesus says, a lot of people who are going to look like they were followers of me. Who may have acted in some ways that they were followers of me. But they were serving not me, but themselves, or he says lawlessness. Lawlessness. It's not going to matter if you call yourself a Christian or if you played one from time to time. What's going to matter is if you are actually doing the will of God. Faith is in action. Not in action. That's how we kind of want it sometimes. But faith is in action. In the second chapter of James, he writes that without action, without movement, our faith is dead. And that faith is worthless to us. And it's worthless to God. Has no value to him. So what is it that gets in the way? What is it that gets in the way of us living and walking by faith every day? Well, the devil, obviously. Unlike what we saw up here, the devil wants nothing more than just to get you distracted from Jesus. He wants you to be that lukewarm Water that Jesus has to spit out of his mouth. In the Screw Tape letters, uh, oh, I just love that book, and if you haven't read it, you should. Um, but in it, he's writing to his 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 demon nephew. It's I don't that that part's weird. Anyway, he says, "Don't make him do evil. Just make him think that he's doing enough. Let him just go to church, but don't let him live out his faith. Let him be." A plain yogurt kind of faith. Something that's present, but without taste. Without real value. The devil wants nothing more than just to get us distracted. Because the thing is, is like, if you fall really far, at some point you're going to realize the, the amount of sin that you have, and that might push you back towards God, and, and the devil doesn't want that. What he wants is, the devil wants us to think that we are okay. That we're doing enough. That good enough is good enough. And he wants us to stop trying. To stop really burning for the Lord. And even though the devil is the main culprit, the main stumbling block, he's not the only one trying to get in our way. The other person who gets in our way is us. Us. We get in the way. Soren Kierkegaard was a 19th century philosopher and theologian, and he summed up this struggle like this. He says, the matter is quite simple. The Bible is very easy to understand. But we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we're obliged to act accordingly. Take any word in the New Testament and forget everything except pledging yourself to act accordingly. My God, you will say, if I do that, my whole life will be ruined. How would I ever get on in this world? Does that ring true? That we pretend sometimes that the Bible is super complicated and hard to understand because the truth is that we don't, we, part of us really just doesn't want to follow it fully. And if we don't understand it, well, then we have an excuse an excuse to separate our our faith from our action. We could say, well, I just, I don't fully understand this yet, so I'm not going to take that step. Well, I don't know if that's what God really meant, so I'm just not going to go and do that, even though I feel within me or I read within the Bible that God is calling me to do something. This is not a new problem. This is a human problem. In Matthew chapter 19, 16 through 22, Jesus is approached by this rich young man who says to Jesus, how do I gain everlasting life? And Jesus does his Jesus thing where he asks the question back, well, how do you read it? Well, paraphrase, obey the commandments, love God, love people, absolutely, do that and you'll have everlasting life. And he says, but I've done these things since I was a child, what must I do? And Jesus says, to, to, to be perfect. Sell everything that you have, give it away, and then come follow me. And what does the man do? He leaves. He's sad. Matthew mentions, well, he was sad because he was a very rich man. But I think probably he was leaving because he's, he was like, well, Jesus couldn't possibly have meant everything. He couldn't imagine his life without the wealth that he had accrued, and he couldn't give himself over into that faith fully. He refused to allow himself to understand. He couldn't follow the direction because it didn't make sense. A lot of times we read this story and we pity the man. We pity him for his inability to live out the faith that he just professed a moment ago. But the truth is that we fall into the same trap he did. That same failure. That same selfishness. I'm going to do a quick survey right now. Raise your hands if in the past while studying this story, whether on your own or in a class, the author or the teacher took time to say that Jesus, that this, this command to sell everything and to follow Jesus was a command given to this man, and not all Christians. Has anyone heard that before? That the command to, to sell everything and to follow Jesus was a command for just this one man? There's not a lot of hands. I've seen a, I see a couple. Now, for you who, who weren't taught that this was a command not just for this one man, have you sold everything and followed Jesus? I've heard this story be like specifically, but we—it's okay because this is a this is a teaching for this man. Jesus knew that this was something that he struggled with, and he challenged him, and and unfortunately, this guy failed. For those of you who did raise their hand, or who maybe just heard it for the first time, because I, I I do believe that Jesus told this specific man this. Does the idea? that this was a specific command for a specific person give you a sense of relief? Do you feel relieved to know that Jesus did not call all of us to sell everything we have, to give it to the poor, and then to follow him in poverty? Does that give you a feeling of relief? That's that human selfishness that's peeking its nose around the corner because we like the stuff that we feel like we've earned. We like the comforts that it affords. This time, I want you to uh, not raise your hands, unless you really feel like it, I guess. This time, don't raise your hands, but I want you to think. What would your reaction be to this section of Scripture If Jesus were to clearly state that all people who follow him must sell all that they have and give to the poor and then follow him, how would you react to that? Thankfully, this is a hypothetical question because he didn't. It's not specifically said that. But what is taught there is that we should hold not on to our earthly possessions as much as we should hold on to Jesus. That's the lesson that we learn. The question is, do we actually follow through with that? There are many places in, in Scripture that we struggle with the teachings. We find them hard to understand. Because, well, part of us doesn't think it's possible, and part of us doesn't want to follow through, just like uh, Kierkegaard said. Because we find it hard to put it into practice. In Matthew chapter 17, 14-20, Jesus told his disciples, who seemed to be trying their best, they were working at trying to drive a demon out of this kid, and they couldn't do it. And they brings them to Jesus and says, please heal my son. And Jesus said, the reason you couldn't do it is because you have so little faith. These people who have been following Jesus and listening to Jesus, their faith is so small, he says, that even if your faith was as big as a mustard seed, you'd be able to tell that mountain to move from here to there, and it would. Jesus said that their faith wasn't even as big as a mustard seed. It fallen short of that. This is a hard teaching to understand. Because we live in a physical world where there are things that physics exists. I find it difficult to believe that if my faith was strong enough, I'd be able to move mountains, literally. And so what do we do with this? What do we do with this scripture? We start to water it down. Well, he was being figuratively. That you can do anything if you just believe and you just have faith in it. That, that you can overcome any obstacle or you can stand up underneath, underneath any kind of persecution. Does Jesus mean that we can literally move mountains? Maybe. I imagine that if his own apostles were struggling with to have enough faith the size of a mustard seed even that we too fall short. We too fail. There are countless other examples of teachings that we've decided that are we are unable to be to fully understand so we just choose not to be fully obedient. But one of the greatest is in Matthew chapter 5 verse 48. It's right there in the middle of The Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is describing how we should actively love our enemies and not just love those who are good to us. And then Jesus drops this nugget of knowledge on us. He says, Be perfect. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we read that and we say, Well, how? I am broken. I see myself fail every day. How can I be perfect?" And then we stop trying to be perfect. We give ourselves an excuse to not strive for perfection because we know we can't reach it. There's no way that I can perfect. Why do I have this in my hand? That's so weird. <laughs> we, we give us, ourselves an excuse to not strive for perfection because we know we can't reach it. Well, God knows that I, I fall short. So he'll forgive me. I don't need to try that hard. And that, that is a problem. That's the devil talking to us, convincing us that our brokenness cannot be overcome. And that by trying, we're going to fail. And by failing, we're going to let down God and then God's going to turn his back on us. And that is one of the devil's greatest lies. He's got all of them. That failing means God's going to turn away from us. So we might as well not even try. That this, this path to perfection is a fool errands at worst and hyperbole at best. But faith is the embodiment of what Jesus calls us to do at 548. Jesus has called us to strive for a goal that we can never reach. To continue to take steps and leaps of faith, trying to be perfect, knowing that we will never do it and never get there, and that we're going to fail every single step. But every day, every moment, we're called to continue walking that path towards perfection. Perfection of thought, perfection of love, perfection of action and reaction to the things that we face in this world. In spite of our many failures and moments of imperfection, we're continued to continue to take steps towards perfection. To continue to try to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Even after we fail, even after we fall back into sin, even after we do everything right, and we're met with failure. When we take that leap of faith to bring Jesus into a conversation with a friend or a loved one and they reject us loudly... To not give up. To keep bringing Jesus into your conversations. To keep trying to share your faith with someone who is rejecting you at every moment. That is walking by faith. That's hard. It's real hard. When you do everything you feel like you're supposed to do and you still fail. Fail. we're called to continue to walk by faith because we have no other choice. As Paul said, that we are of good confidence. We are confident in our faith because we walk by faith and not by sight. I walk by faith in Jesus Christ knowing that if I serve him, that he is going to come home, come, not home, come here and take me home. That's the faith that we have in Christ. Not just that he existed, but that he promised that he was going to do something and that he will hold up his end of the bargain. And I celebrate that by doing his will. Even when it's hard. Even when I do everything right and I'm rejected. To be willing and able to dive into the life that God has set before us, to love recklessly day after day, just as God Loves us recklessly. Let's pray. gently, Father, God, we thank you for your son. We thank you for his sacrifice, which gives us a path to perfection, Lord. God, we thank you for this difficult path that you've set before us, God. Lord, we thank you for the strength that you offer us. And I just pray that we can open our eyes to it. And that we can take those steps day after day, even when it hurts, even when we, we find ourselves off track to not give up, but to instead turn back towards you and strive for that perfection that we can never reach. To take those steps of faith daily, in spite of our brokenness, in spite of our failures, because we know that your grace covers all things, and that you make us perfect, and that you want us to be with you. Lord, help that give us courage and help us love recklessly in this world. It's through your son that we pray, amen.